This word this morning could be very challenging, could be very unsettling, um, but that's okay because sometimes God's word doesn't just come along to comfort, sometimes God's word come along, comes along to challenge, to transform, amen? amen? So this morning, we want to talk about something It's a little unsettling, it's a little discomforting, it's, it's, it's about insider-outsider dynamics, and um, it's going to be very, very good, hopefully, that we can do it with humility and with grace and with God's truth and God's word. So let's go before him in prayer. I know we just prayed. But we are in church and we get to talk to God as much as we want. Thank God. And so let's pray to him. God, we love you this morning. Um, we thank you, as Jeremy said, that you are the center of it all. And so we ask, Lord God, just as your truth has been sung in uh, worship and in song, Lord God, we ask that worship would continue as your truth goes out in our words, Lord God. And may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. All right. Amen. Here we go. Um, now, this weekend could possibly be the greatest weekend of 2012. And it's not that the perfection of this weekend does not stem from the fact that it's a holiday weekend, that we're commemorating the achievements of American workers. Labor Day is great, but it's not that great because of that. And then the, the, the perfection of this weekend doesn't stem from the fact that of, of Labor Day's seasonal implications, right? Because now summer is officially over tomorrow and we're getting closer and closer to the greatest season of all, which, of course, is the fall. And the the perfection of this weekend doesn't even stem from the fact that you have work off tomorrow, that you have school off tomorrow, that you're going to do wonderful things, festive things with your families. No, the perfection of this weekend stems from something much more transcendent, much more universal, something that taps into the primal instincts of we true southerners, the instincts of competition and fattening foods and tailgating, something that taps into something that has the potential to unify our homes into this utopian harmony and yet send other homes into the depths of civil war and trash talk. Something, one of the only things that finds its way into our bumpers, that decides our ringtones, that decorates our homes, that furnishes our lawns, and yes, even causes grown women, men and women to wear colors that are more often found on air traffic control vests than normal human wardrobes. Yes, I'm talking about Tennessee orange, Jeremy. That horrible orange color, right? I'm talking about this weekend is great because of the commencement of the 2012 college football season. And it is here, friends. Yeah. Many of you did not leave your couch from about 10 a.m. yesterday when college game day comes on until that Alabama game, which was a blowout, ended last night. But it's wonderful and it's here. Now, I would assume that we have many different college fan bases represented here this morning. But I would... uh, There's a couple. There's one, right? And I would assume like that gentleman just did or... uh, Lady, I don't know who that was. <laughs> <laughs> I can't see anything. All right. So, she's, she's managed. <laughs> I, would, I would assume that most of the people in here, if you were to be cut, you would bleed either black and red or gold and white. I'm of the latter persuasion, right? And you can't be both simultaneously. That's heresy down here. But there's others of you who feel like, you know, Abraham sojourning in a hostile territory that is not your own. You're just waiting for God to rise up your teams so that you can feel victorious in this land. And yet you still wear your colors proudly, enduring the persecutions of we ignorant home team fans, all for the glory of those Florida Gators or those Tennessee Volunteers or even those Ohio State Buckeyes. And see, and I I would assume that that many of you, especially you oppressed foreigners in the room, that you would feel like 
when, when you're engaging with someone and a, a, kind of a, you're meeting someone for the first time, you're kind of going through the boring little conversation tidbits and where are you from, etc. When the second you find out that they're a fellow warrior for your team, well, there's a new energy in that conversation, right? There's a whole new level of conversation. You can begin to talk about former players and coaches and glory days and either lamenting or celebrating whatever potential your team has this season. Tennessee looked good the first week, but I don't, I don't know. Okay, so um, <laughs> I'm sorry. Don't worry, I get to talk in a second. <laughs> I know. It's not like it's not like text any better. So um, yeah, so see, so there's this there's this power in knowing that someone is a fellow fan of our teams, right? And nothing captures this better than an ESPN commercial from last year that came out, and it's from uh, it's for those who are Alabama fans in the room, and it's beautiful. It shows the power of college football to unite us. I want us to take a look at that commercial. It's very brief. Daryl, why don't you run it and show us what ESPN put out? Roll Tide. Roll Tide. Roll Tide. Roll Tide. Roll Tide. Roll Tide, y'all. Roll Tide, Roll Tide. Roll Tide. Roll Tide. Roll Tide. Roll Tide. It's such an honor. Roll Tide. Roll Tide. Yep. I'm Erin Dacey. Roll Tide. You will always be remembered. Roll Tide. Roll Tide. How perfect is that commercial, right? I mean, I can't sympathize with it, but I can just, I long to be a part of it, right? My favorite one is when the guy's getting in the hot tub and he uses Roll Tide as a question. I didn't know that that was possible, but he does. Roll Tide, am I safe? Am I, am I able to commune with you elite folk, right? Can I get in the hot tub with you? Yes, come on. Roll Tide, right? Well, there's a power, in, like this commercial shows that, is this, is that me humming? Yes. If it is me humming. Why? Okay. All right. Okay, so there's a power in it because it shows that when we are in groups together and we have a common purpose, we feel like insiders, right? Even if that purpose is the idolatrous glorification of Nick Saban. But nevertheless, like, we feel like we have, we, we feel like we belong, we have a sense of protection, we feel like we can be comforted in these groups. That's why people want to join elite clubs and fraternities and they, they join political parties and it navigates everything from our social groups at work, Right? All the way up, like I said, to political parties and college football and beyond. We love being insiders. We're insiders here at this church. Even there's, there's groups of insiders and outsiders even within this church. Right? I'm an insider with this group of friends, but not with this group of friends. So insider, outsider navigates everything that we do and say. There's a common lingo among us. There's a common uh, experiences. There's common body language, etc. There's a power to being an insider. That's why people long to be an insider in groups. And, and, and this commercial gets at it. it. It goes beyond just merely being fans, but it, it covers social strata. It covers all different walks of life. But it doesn't, it's not just in our day-to-day lives that this insider-outsider kind of innocently plays out. It also has a role in our faith. You know, it's not quite as funny as college football. But a few weeks ago, you know, we had Chick-fil-A Appreciation Day. Dan Cathy made comments about traditional marriage in a Christian publication. And immediately there was this firestorm of those who were insiders in agreement with that statement, those who were outsiders in opposition to that statement. And there were really two issues at play. And the people that showed up for Chick-fil-A Day did, did it for one or two reasons primarily. They supported the statement that was made, or they were protesting the statement that was made, Or they were just supporting his right to free speech to say what he wanted to say or protesting that right to free speech. So you had insiders and outsiders in this very divisive issue. So there's insiders and outsiders at play in social circles. 
you have this election season. I don't know if, if you're like me, you, you kind of get wrapped up in the politics of this season. And this, the last few nights this past week was the Republican National Convention. And there were insiders in the arena in Tampa. There were also outsiders protesting outside of the arena in Tampa. And you had those who were speaking from the stage who were speaking to the group of insider Republicans kind of rallying the base. They were speaking to outsiders, whether that be the outsiders of the other party or what the Democrats will also do at their convention this week. They'll speak to their insiders, rally their base. And both groups are kind of speaking to that unknown, undecided group that that will swing this election. And so you have insider and outsider lingo in our political circles as well. And, and it's, it's politics that really divides us pretty quickly, especially for those of us who are believers, because you really then run the lines of where does my allegiance lie? We talked about this around July the 4th, but does my allegiance run to God first and foremost, or does it run along the political platform of one or the other party? I have a Facebook, and I'll, I'll quote friend it here, Facebook friend, that the other day I was just scrolling along and saw this quote on my newsfeed. If you call yourself a Democrat and a Christian, you either don't know what it means to be a Democrat or what it means to be a Christian because you can't be both. Now, whether or not you agree with that statement, that is very insider-outsider language right there. That's saying, I understand what it means to be a Christian. I'm inside the circle. And if you don't believe like I believe in this way, you're on the outside of that circle and you cannot do both. You can't be the same thing I am and something different than I am. So not only does it get into our political language, it now gets into our religious language. It really affects the people of God in all circles of life. I mean, it's, it's funny stuff when we're talking about who do you cheer for, who were your allegiances for yesterday, and who were you waiting on the game to kick off. But when you start getting into issues like we had that centered around Chick-fil-A Day, when you start getting into issues about whether or not we're going to allow the mosque near the 9-11 memorial in New York City, when you start getting into which party are you aligned with this fall, When you start getting into what does it actually mean to be a Christian, and if you're this, you are a Christian. If you're not, then you're not. You begin to get into very divisive language. And you begin to stipulate what it means to believe and what it means not to believe. And that is a very, very slippery, slippery slope. But this is not a new occurrence for God's people. This is not something that just showed up In the most recent centuries, this was something that existed in God's word. And so Justin's going to talk to us about a story that maybe we're pretty comfortable with. Yeah, um, this is a story we may not have looked at in a long time. Um, Maybe not since the days when you were coloring a whale with a man inside of it. Okay, (laughs) Um, if you can get at where I'm going. Okay, this is a very beautiful story. Moses, right? Moses? (laughs) Jesus, actually. Oh. Um, But. (laughs) I always forget that. So we're going to look at that story here in a minute because we often focus on the first two chapters and miss the whole point of the story. It's a very challenging story that was meant to rub Israel the wrong way. So if you can, could you open your Bibles with me, please, to Jonah? Um, We're going to start reading in chapter 3. I'll set you up with chapters 1 and 2. This whole insider-outsider dynamic, this whole who belongs in God's camp and who doesn't belong in God's camp, has been plaguing God's people since their beginning, since their inception. And Jonah is the best, beautiful, funny example of that. 
And so, um, forgive me, there's going to be a point in this next little spiel that I have before I turn it back to Jeremy, that I'm going to turn to this iPad and start reading. It's because I wanted to be able to say what's challenging and um, what's dis- unsettling um, in a very concise and clear manner. And I, can do, I, I write better than I speak. So I'm going to go to that. It's only a couple minutes long. When I get there, just don't freak out. I'm not lost. I'm, I'm just turning to the iPad. All right, here we go. So Jonah is about um, a, a man named, the book of Jonah is about a man named Jonah who's a prophet. And it says in the beginning that his name, his name is Jonah, son of Amittai. And that's all we know about him. His name means dove. That's about it. But God comes to him, the word of the Lord comes to him in verse 1 and says, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, for its wickedness has risen up before me. Right? We don't know a whole lot about Jonah, but we do know a whole lot about Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was the capital of this massive empire known as the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrian Empire was known for its violence and its ruthlessness and its bloodiness and its oppression. In fact, the prophet Nahum, who has, who has a book in the Bible as well, it's a short book, but he is very, very angry against the Assyrian kingdom. He, uses, he speaks God's word against them, and he uses descriptions like um, piles and piles of body, bloodied corpse piled on top of one another, right? Because when Assyria would go into towns and conquer them, they would just leave all the bodies there for all the residents to see and all the homes burning, and there would be just pools and rivers of blood in the cities. This was a time before the United Nations. There was nobody that could compete with the Assyrians. So there was no justice. They were just complete unchecked violence and oppression. In fact, they're responsible for the destruction of Israel in 722, the northern kingdom. And they also assault Jerusalem in 703. They're they're a big, bad, evil people. They're like the Al-Qaeda group today, but like on steroids in like massive empire form. Okay, so the the word of the Lord comes to Jonah and says, you're going to go to Nineveh. So Jonah goes down to Joppa, which is on the port of Israel, and he goes to Tarshish. Now, just to give you an example, Tarshish is on the coast of Spain. um, And Nineveh is 650 miles northeast of Joppa. Okay, so it's analogous to God saying, I want you to go to Congress. You're in Canton right now. And God says, I want you to go to Congress and preach against Congress. And you board a flight for San Francisco. It's the exact same thing. He's going 2,200 miles in the opposite direction of God's call. And we don't know why. Maybe, we, maybe he's scared, but we don't know why yet. So he gets on the boat, sleeping in the bottom of the boat. We know the story, right? If, you, if you're familiar with this, if you grew up in this. The Gentiles are on the boat, and they're kind of heeing on along. And then God sends this massive storm against the boat. They begin to freak out. Jonah comes up, and he's like, they wake Jonah up. And Jonah's like, yeah, it's all my fault. I've disobeyed God. He goes, just throw me in the ocean. It's not a problem. And they're like, no, no, no. We don't want to throw you in the ocean. We don't want your blood on our hands. So they try and row the boat back to Joppa, but they can't get there. The storm is just too strong. And so they pray to God, and they say, God, please don't have this man's blood on our hands. They throw him into the ocean. And you know what? A big, great fish swallows him, and he lives in the belly of a whale for three days and three nights. And in Jonah chapter two, living in the nasty stomach fluid of a whale or or what the text says is a great fish. He, he gives this beautiful prayer of repentance. It's kind of an obscure prayer of repentance, but that's something you can talk about at dinner tomorrow over Labor Day. You can be like, hey, you know what? We could talk about the prayer in Jonah, how kind of it's obscure. Like, and then you'll be, have lots of friends, but it, um, Anyways, it's, it's kind of an obscure prayer. It's a beautiful prayer of repentance. And then after three days and three nights, the, the great fish spits him up under the sand, right? He's laying in fluid. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah again. And this is where I want to pick up. If you don't have your Bibles, it's going to be on the screen. I'm reading from the New International Version, starting in chapter 3. Okay, this is what it says. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Well, if you've been in the belly of a whale, I think I'll oblige this. I think I'll, I think I'll hear you out, God, right? So Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh, the great big bad city of Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. A, a, another translation could say it's a very great city, a very large city. 
A visit required three days, meaning it took you three days to walk from one end of the city to another. It's a massive, massive city, okay? And just to show you how Jonah is the ever-reluctant prophet, watch this. He's like, I'll do it, God, but I'm going to do the bare minimum, okay? On the first day, Jonah starts into the city. So it's like, it's like he's looking for the city limit sign, and he sees it. It's right there, and he kind of goes like 10 feet in, right? And he's like, okay, okay, I'm, I'm pretty much obeying the word of God. I'm not really in the heart of the city, but God told me to go to Nineveh, so here I am in the city limits. And he proclaims this prophecy. 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. Now, in the Hebrew, that's five words. A five-word prophecy. Jonah is a prophet, and the only prophecy he gives is five words. Now, watch this. The ever-reluctant prophet, okay, 40 more days and God's going to overthrow your city, right? This is what happens. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast in all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. All of these are just huge signs of repentance before God. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Hear me, okay? Nineveh is not just repenting from the king down to the lowest member of society. They're even putting sackcloth on their cattle, okay? It's like God's calling your house to repentance and you start causing your chihuahua to repent, okay? It's meant to be funny, right? Even the animals are repenting before God. Jonah, the one who doesn't want to obey the word of God, and yet the Ninevites obey the word of God immediately all the way down to the lowest and the least of the chihuahuas. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And look at this. Verse 10. This is our God. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. Imagine this. The U.S. Navy SEALs are going in to kill Osama bin Laden, right? about a year over a year ago now go in to kill osama bin laden they have a gun pointed at his head and osama falls to his knees and says i worship jesus christ i repent and they say okay we're good to go and they walk out the door and say you're free to do whatever you want that's essentially what is happening because god is the only form of justice in the ancient world and he goes before the most violent people and all they have to do is put on sackcloth and repent and god's like okay you're good i'm going to relent all punishment from you it's ludicrous it's offensive right And so look what Jonah does. Jonah gets all worked up in chapter 4. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Look at his prayer. Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. Now we know why he fled to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God. Slow to anger and abounding in love. A God who relents from sin and calamity. Okay, that formula there, gracious and compassionate. The word compassion is the word rahum. It's from the word meaning womb, right? So God has motherly compassion upon his people. These are the words that God reveals to his people back in Exodus 34. They're the, like the quintessential worship words in the Old Testament, right? And Jonah doesn't use them to worship God. Jonah uses them to indict God. And God says, I knew the whole time that you were gracious. That's how I didn't want to go to this stupid Nineveh city. That's why I wanted to go to Tarshish, right? And this is what it says. Now, O Lord... Take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. He becomes suicidal. Think about this for a minute. I think that most of us, if we were to decide between the God camp who sees the Ninevites and repents and the Jonah camp, I think most of us would side with the God camp on the surface. 
We would say, yeah, who wouldn't want to see a massive evil empire repent before God and, and give up all their evil ways and turn to him, right? Who wouldn't want to see that? We love, we Pentecostals, we love our testimonies, right? We love to hear the stories of God's redemption and the beauty of people taking drug addicts and, and finding, overcoming their addiction in Jesus' name or people, uh, prisoners on death row finding Jesus and, and living for him the last of their days, whatever the case is. We love those kinds of stories on the surface. But is Jonah mad because Nineveh repented? No. Why is Jonah mad? He's all worked up because of God's character. Right? He's all worked up. His issues are theological. He's all worked up because God has shattered his insider and outsider character categories. You know what he says? He essentially says to God, you know what, God? You want to know why I fled to Tarshish? You want to know why I went hundreds of miles in the opposite direction? Because I knew deep down in my gut that you were a softy, that you were a pushover who would believe the repentant charade of any fundamentally evil people. I knew, I recognized, God, that your voice, your initiative, your call was even among them. And I don't want to pardon it. Jonah is essentially saying to God, I knew that even they, these violent and evil people, were insiders to your motherly compassion. And my stomach cannot, cannot take this saccharine love affair with these evil, evil people. And here is where we resonate with Jonah. On the surface, we said we want everyone to come to Jesus Christ. And I think we mean that and I think we believe that. But as Jeremy was saying, we often take up issues, we take up ideas, we take up claims, and we say, God's on my side. God's all on my side. And everybody that's not on my side, well, God's on the outside of that. And you're an outsider to God's initiative in the world. Or we say Jesus Christ is what makes me better than those around me. And here I want to turn just a couple of minutes and read what I have. We often prefer issues over people. We Christians parade our issues on our banners in the name of Jesus. Banners of political parties, of policies, moral requirements of our rights as Americans. And we transform people whom God cares for into outsiders into enemies who do not conform to our qualification lists. These outsiders could be anyone to us. They could be Muslims, atheists, members of opposite political parties. They could be denominations. They could be capitalists. They could be socialists. They could be terrorists. They could be environmentalists. They could be gay rights activists. And as we rally our troops in the name of whatever spectacle or fad has revved up our emotions, as we raise our standards in God's name and march against the outsiders, we stand opposite our outsiders and we peer into their ranks and see that God is even among them. We see God in the faces of those outsiders who were also created in his image. We see God mingling among their ranks with elegance and justice, telling beautiful stories of an everlasting love that bleeds for them. We see God pleading for them to rest in him just as God pleads for us to rest in him. We see God unafraid of their stains just as God is unafraid of ours. We see God undeterred by their impurity just as God is undeterred by ours. We see God stubbornly faithful just as God is faithful to us. And we see God beckoning to repentance just as God beckons us this morning. And like Jonah, this revelation slaps us in the face and almost always sits sourly in our stomachs. You see, we like our personal gods, lowercase g, our personal gods much better than we like the capital G God of Scripture. We love God the American. God the Republican, God the Democrat, God the anti-Muslim, God the anti-Catholic, God the anti-Protestant, God the anti-Palestinian, more. Well, because these gods make us feel like insiders to the divine agenda. However, just as God's call interrupts Jonah's routine and makes Jonah's life torturous until he wakes up to God's purposes for the Ninevites, so God is screaming at us through this text to wake up to where God's heart is beating. In his wonderful and stubborn grace, God wants, to see the, church, God wants the church to see God as he truly is. And he is willing even to make our lives miserable until we wise up to it. Where might God's heart be found? Not among the culture wars, 
not among our false personal gods, not among our agendas, but among those whom we've labeled as other. Those whom we've never had a meal with. Those whom we can't stomach, those who are sinful, those who disgust us, those who would create a stir among our church gossip networks, those who would deserve death and vengeance, those who are immigrants, yes, even those who are plotting terrorism. Those on the outside, those in Nineveh. God's heart is there. And God is fed up with a church that keeps sailing to Tarshish, afraid that God might be as loving and as universal as God's word claims him to be. And yet, God is faithful, even to his disobedient people continually guiding us back toward the outsiders until they hear, too, of the God who yearns for their repentance. What am I saying? I'm saying that we might, too, find, just as Jonah was reluctant to believe that God is as universally loving as God says he is, we might find that once we get to the outsiders, that they're much more receptive to hear of this God than we ever imagined they would be. And our stubborn hearts, right, have been running from the outsiders. We've been the ones we call ourselves God people, and yet we're the most stubborn (laughs) And yet we get to the outsiders and we say, let me tell you something about a God who loves you. And they say, I want to hear more. And I'm going to repent all the way down to my chihuahua. Amen. Right? So, but it's not just about insider-outsider categories. God's not just messing with their insider-outsider categories to the point of Jonah's misery. There's something else that happens at the end of the story. Anybody glad you came today? You feel good? I want to jump right back into the text of Jonah chapter 4 where Justin left off just a few minutes ago. Jonah chapter 4 beginning in verse 6. And I want us just to look at a couple more verses here in this text before we kind of wrap this up. It says, Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. This is after he's left the city. He's now, he's done his little montage of why he's mad at God. It says to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. Now, notice that Jonah was not upset when the plant grew up over him to keep the heat off of him. He said, surely this is the goodness of God. Surely this is the grace and mercy of God extended to me. Thank you, God, for big, leafy plants. He was not as thrilled when God sent the worm that chewed up the leaf, the plant, and it disappeared. Because, see, Jonah, exactly what Justin described here, Jonah saw himself as the recipient of God's blessing and favor and and just could not understand that, the other parts of that might also be a part of the story of God. And so he's left here saying, I'm, I'm the insider. I was the insider. I, I should have gotten the plant and, and just lived there under the plant. Jonah lost sight of his position in the story of God. Let's continue to read in verse 10. Said the, and the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh? So this is one of two books of the Bible that ends in a question. And it's almost as if the end of this text is to turn it back to you and I and have us kind of check our hearts. God asking Jonah, should I not pity Nineveh? 
And Justin's done an incredible job of asking these kinds of questions, but replace Nineveh with whoever it is that you have difficulty believing that God would pity. Should I not pity fill in the blank? I don't know who it is. We're, we're using very like outlandish stereotypes and cliches today, but should I not pity God asking here? Should I not pity Muslims? Should I not pity homosexuals? Should I not pity fill in the blank with whatever it is that you believe? Like, I don't, I'm not sure. Like, yes, in church, I would say this, but in my heart, if, if we just really threw my heart and my feelings up on the screen, I'm not sure that God should pity fill in the blank. And I think the larger question today in light of who God is and what we understand from Scripture is the real question is God is making sure that you understand. He's asking, should I not pity you? I mean, should I, if if we're boiling this down to like the bare bones, brass tacks of the issue here, should I not pity you? Why are you any different than any other group you just filled the blank in with? Right? Because we've lost sight of our position and this is going to be up on the screen because this has just been kind of tormenting me this week. So I've asked them to put this up here. This is just this one phrase that I want you to take with you this week. When we lose sight of our position, we lose sight of the heart of God. When we think that we're insiders and lose sight of the fact that we're on level playing field with all of the other outsiders, we lose sight of the heart of God that God's extended that grace and mercy to all of us. Should I not pity you? I, I, I really, I, I get this sense when I read this that like, it's, it's just, it's you answering that question. Do you want God to pity you? Do, do I want God to pity me? If I say yes, which I think we all would, do I, then do I believe God should pity all? That God's grace and mercy extends to all. And this is not just an Old Testament issue. I mean, like when we see the law and the heaviness of the law in the Old Testament, Like, it's easy to see, like, the weight of the justice and judgment of God. But then Jesus shows up in the New Testament, and we see this grace and truth dynamic that is so difficult to achieve in our lives every day. That Jesus came with grace and truth. Pastor Mark talked about this just a few weeks ago, but many times when you and I engage someone, we either come full of grace and no truth, or we come all truth and no grace. And finding that balance is so difficult. But Jesus was the prime example of someone who came and and had this unbelievable balance in in being with people, pitying, grace-filled, loving, compassionate, caring toward everyone, but being about his father's business, speaking truth. This is is the balance that he finds in Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 15, talking about Jesus, says, as He reclined at the table in his house. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. You want to know who the scribes of the Pharisees are? Us. It's us. And I mean, I grew up in church, and so this may sound like a cliche phrase to some of you who have that similar experience. Maybe for others of you, this is relatively new, and, and, and I'm not intending to speak on behalf of Jesus in this. I, I can't, there's no way to back this up from Scripture. But if Jesus were in Canton today, where would he be? 
I mean, I would love to say he'd be sitting right here like amening me to death. Right? Thank you. Thank you. No, that's Jeff. No. Like, I got, I, I don't know. I don't know where he would be. Like, me trying to find that answer really leads me back to the heart of God. And this is a story that I find him reclining at the table with a group of people that made the scribes and the Pharisees, like the really religious people, extremely, extremely uncomfortable. Not just at the beginning of his ministry, not just throughout his ministry, but at the very end of his life, right before he's to go to the cross. He's sitting at a table with some of his closest followers. And sitting among them is a man who will betray Jesus. Judas is sitting at the table, partaking of the last supper meal. And at some point later in that evening, Jesus looks at Judas, who he fully now understands is going to betray him and set in motion the will of the Father that sends Jesus to the cross and ultimately to death here on earth. And he says to Judas, who he has just shared a meal with, go and do what you must do. Go and do what you must do. Like I am, I am confronted with the idea that Jesus understood the heart of the Father and that maybe the more I understand about the heart of the Father, the more uncomfortable I get. Like on the surface in this room, it is easy to say, yeah, I believe that God came for all people. God exists for all people. Jehovah God wishes to seek and save the lost. He sent Christ to the earth to seek and save the lost. And I believe that we we can say that we declare that we sing that we worship in those melodies of songs. But there's a story in scripture that I think illustrates our true heart a little better. And I use it a lot. And if you've been around now for a couple months with us, you may have heard me use this one or two times before. But I, I think there's a, there's a story in, in the Gospels. It's the parable of the vineyard worker. And it's the idea that early in the morning, a, a, a guy that owns a field goes out and gets some workers to work in his field that day. And he says, hey, I'm going to pay you. You know, I'll just use my own phrase here. This is not what scripture says. I'm going to pay you 10 bucks for the day. And they're like, awesome, let's go. Later in the day, he goes and he gets some more workers. He's like, hey, come and work for me and I'll pay you. Later in the day, he goes and gets some more workers, says, come and work for me, I'll pay you. Later in the day, he does it again. At the very end of the day, with like an hour or two left in the day, he goes and gets more workers, brings them together. And when he gets to the end of the day, he begins to pay them and he pays everybody the same amount. The guys that showed up at the end of the day and the guys that worked all day in the hot sun, he pays them the exact same amount. And the guys that were there in the morning say, what's the deal with this? This is not fair. Like, I deserve better than this. I deserve more. I don't understand why they get the same thing I get. This story is an indictment, an arrow right through my heart. Because I assume every time I read that story, I'm the guy that showed up in the morning. Like, I assume I'm an early morning vineyard worker that worked all day. I've been in church. I went to VBS. I went to children's church. I was in the youth group. My God, I was in the youth choir. That was awful. Right? My parents made me do that and made me believe if I didn't do that, I wasn't going to heaven. I don't even know. We couldn't watch The Simpsons because Bart was disrespectful. That was when you got to live right. Right. I'm the early morning guy. I'm an insider. I, I should get the best deal. 
And if somebody like repents on their deathbed, how is that fair? They didn't have to do anything right in their life. And they go to heaven with me? I mean, thief on the cross, father, you know, hey, today, see me in paradise. Like, I want to be with you. And Jesus is like, hey, come on. Really? (laughs) So if I can just hang out and know like the end's coming, I can just slide right in at the end. Is that how this works now? Because us insiders, we know how it works. We know the rules. We know you're supposed to do it this way and not that way. This group of people makes it. That group of people does not. And please don't hear what I'm not saying. Double negative. All the English teachers just had a fit. Right? Don't hear what I'm not saying. We're not saying there's no such thing as sin. We're not saying that you condone every single thing. I'm just, I think the, the crux of the matter today is that what you think is insiders may be outsiders. What you think is outsiders may be insiders. And when you thought you were an insider, actually we're all outside. And you know how God got us from outside to inside? He sent Jesus. And Jesus brought us in from the outside. No one is worthy of the grace and mercy and forgiveness except through the compassionate love of a heavenly father who would see a vile city in sackcloths and ashes repenting before him and forgive. And if truth be told, there are some times in my life When I've seen stories like that, and I've had the heart of Jonah. See, God, I knew you were going to, that's not fair. That's not fair. I knew you were gracious. I thought I was an insider, and you just let a bunch of outsiders in. Sometimes it's my own insecurity, because if they got in, am I in? Here's the question today. In just a moment, the hosts are going to come and they're going to distribute some communion elements. Here's the questions that I want you just to kind of reflect on and ask yourself today. Taking all of my predisposed ideas, taking all of my like ingrained ideologies and philosophy here and setting them aside just for a moment, if possible. Just taking, taking all the things that I've built up in my head as to what divides insiders and outsiders. Setting that aside for a moment, I want you to ask yourself this question. Who does the heart of God beat for? Who does the heart of God beat for? Who that you've kind of thrust aside, you've assumed they're beyond repentance. Does God heart beat for them? The person that you know who seems the farthest away from God, does God's heart beat for them? With as much sincerity and introspection as you can possibly muster here, who does the heart of God beat for? Now the harder question. Does my heart beat for them too? Does my heart beat for the people that God's heart beats for? Like, who am I welcoming to my table? 
Who am I pulling into my life for fellowship, to engage, to invest? Who am I reclining at my table to do life with for potentially the larger story of God? Do I understand my position as a co-equal outsider except for the grace and compassion of the Father? Our hosts are going to come in just a second. They're going to distribute some elements for communion. You'll have like a little wafer cracker. You'll have a cup of juice. As they're distributing these elements, Danielle and these guys, they're going to, they're going to sing a song that really just speaks to the heart of what we're talking about today. And I encourage you, as you receive these elements, you'll just take those out of the trays and I, you're, going to, you're going to hold those in your hand. As you hold them, I encourage you to listen I encourage you to look. The words will be up on the screen. I encourage you just to check your heart and say, God, this is a meal that I'm about to eat with you. I'm about to reenact one of the greatest examples of servanthood ever portrayed in Scripture, ever portrayed in history. And when this event happened the first time, there was a, there was a person at the table that Jesus knew was kind of an outsider. Other examples of Jesus sitting at the table with outsiders. God, who does your heart beat for? And in this sacred moment, as I hold the body and blood of your son, Jesus, who is your grace extended, will you help my heart to beat for them too? And then we'll come back and we'll take communion together. Come on and serve them. God, as we, uh, we hold these elements in our hands, before we take part in this really sacred moment, sacred meal, I pray that the message of your gracious, compassionate love is not lost today because of our pre-assumptions, really kind of our presumptions on you. God, would we step back and allow you to be the just and righteous God that you are? And would we be your hands and feet extended? God, would you allow us in this world to play the role that you called us to play, to be your church? God, would we see ourselves not as insiders, as elite, entitled insiders who are more deserving than others, but God, would we see ourselves as equal recipients of your grace through your Son, Jesus Christ? Would you help us to live in ways that recognize your heart? To ask who it is that your heart beats for. Should you not pity Nineveh? Should you not pity fill in the blank? And God, would you break our heart for what breaks yours? Would you allow our hearts to be aligned with that? And God, would you allow our hearts to beat for, to pity, to extend grace and mercy, to illuminate you every opportunity where we have. those that you long for. We thank you for the example of your son, Jesus. 
to recenter us on your grace.